Hymn number 170 has been asked. Trail does that we mark that and use that somewhat later in the service this evening. It truly is another blessed opportunity that we've each been granted and given as the shades of evening on this Lord's Day are gathering about us. And we do so with a desire to worship God in a way that brings honor and exaltation to His name. As we do so tonight, and as was announced in the bulletin as well, our lesson, our series of lessons tonight will continue with our study of some of the features of that book of 1 Samuel. As you noted, perhaps in the lesson last Sunday evening, we had arrived to the conclusion of chapter 4. And perhaps during the course of that time, some of the highlighted features we together had seen focused upon the introduction of a gentleman known as Samuel. We, in fact, learned somewhat of his birth, the features of his family, the characteristics of his godly mother, and furthermore, we came to see about the failure of his predecessor, Eli. In course of time, Eli, of course, was severely reprimanded for his failures, and God even foretold to him in chapter 2 of this book that the day would come when not an old man would remain in his house. In fact, as that brought us to the fourth chapter, really, we noted last week, Eve, or last Sunday evening, that a rather dark and desperate day occurred in the life of ancient Israel. Wasn't it true on that occasion that they made a choice in the, as they battled against the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant in, into battle, thinking that that would guarantee their victory over the Philistines, but in fact, it turned out to their great defeat. Approximately 34,000 Israelites were slain as a result of that battle, Eli himself died when he fell off the seat backward after having learned the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and stolen. Furthermore, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both also were slain. Phinehas' wife, she too died in giving birth, and that son was given a very appropriate name. The glory is departed from Israel, embodied in the name Ichabod. In light of all of that, what a tremendously desperate day that it was and again that closed the fourth chapter our mind couldn't help but wonder what will be the succeeding chapters will in fact things take a turn for the better for ancient Israel tonight as we open to chapter 5 we will study that chapter and the two that follow with a desire to indeed ultimately see that things did take a somewhat brighter path eventually for the children of Israel as you can see on the slide to my left we uh, will continue that series of studies, ultimately culminating with the seventh chapter this evening. As we have done in time past, and as it would be my wish we also may do this evening, to not only sketch the historical sections of these chapters, but certainly to seek to extract some beneficial thoughts and lessons that can help us even unto this day. When it comes to the Old Testament... It still is true, isn't it, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, the famous refrain of Romans 15:4. It certainly is not the case that we live beneath that law, but in terms of the principles, the appreciations, and some overarching themes that may be of great benefit to us, Often to the old Bible we may turn, and from it learn some precious meat that can assist us to even better appreciate the New Testament. Tonight, as we begin in chapter 5, we notice, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the scene immediately turns to the children of Israel and the absence of the Ark of the Covenant. 
You and I recall from our study of the book of Exodus that the Ark of the Covenant occupied a centrally important role for them. It was housed, of course, in the most holy place. It was this place on which the mercy seat was located, and it was there where God promised to meet with them. Exodus 25, verse 22. Because of that, one may immediately see why Eli was so gravely concerned when they foolishly chose to take the Ark of the Covenant away. Now, with Israel without that ark, what would befall them? What would happen to them in this chapter and the ones that follow? We have already seen that the desperation of their defeat highlighted the key fact that they at this point were not living as they ought to have been, else God would have been with them. It is to chapter 5 we now turn. We notice the Philistines had captured that ark and they took it away from that place as they took it from Ebenezer. In chapter 5, verse number 1, they hauled it off to, of course, a place well known in their districts, a central city known to them as Ashdod. As they brought it there, the men of Ashdod immediately, of course, placed it in a location of elevation. They placed it in the house of Dagon. Dagon was the key Philistine god. They thus placed the Ark of the Covenant in this location which they thought would be a proper place that emphasized the fact that they had captured it and that they, of course, by way of their God, actually reigned supreme over it. Much to their surprise, when they came into the house of Dagon the next morning, Dagon was fallen over on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. Over the course of the night, that stump, that very idolatrous caricature, if you please, had been knocked over by the power of God and now rested on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. They, of course, stood the idol back up. The next morning they came back and again found that Dagon had been fallen over or knocked over, but this time far more noticeably damaged because the head had fallen off as well as the palms had also fallen off. We notice one more time the great power required to appreciate the nature of what transpired that night. Dagon was no match for the God of heaven, no match for the greatness of that Ark of the Covenant and all that it stood for. We notice, of course, this time they learned a rather valiant lesson. It is stated in that chapter that even until continuing days passed, even the priest would not tread upon the threshold in the house of Dagon because they had seen what had happened when Dagon was faced with the Ark of the Covenant. But we notice even more. Not only was Dagon, that god of the Philistines, in such sore disrepair at the face of the Ark of the Covenant, we notice that the people of Ashdod were afflicted with a number of maladies. The Scriptures, in fact, the King James reads it as emeralds, The Hebrew word seems to indicate a greatness of tumors. This people were afflicted, it seems, with great and deadly tumors. They, of course, soon appreciated that all of this was tied to their having possession of the Ark of the Covenant. As they had meetings and as they called for other Philistines to come and talk with them, they learned that it was apparently due to this presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And thus, they, in short order, had it sent to another Philistine city. This time, we're reminded it was taken to Gath, another notable and major city of the Philistines, but upon coming to this place, 
they too began to appreciate that they were afflicted with tumors and they were afflicted with other maladies and great death, in fact, came their way. It is to be noted that on these two occasions, these cities suffered mightily at the hand of having the Ark of the Covenant. As you can well imagine, these people as well in this city of Gath called various conferences and attempted to understand why it was that these tumors had come their way. We began to notice rather quickly that they too, in short order, sent that Ark elsewhere. This time it came to, of course, be in the city of Ekron, another major city of the Philistines. As it arrived at this place too, we find the text very specific in saying that a great slaughter came to this city. They too afflicted with tumors. They too, of course, in a very sore state as a result of possessing and having that Ark of the Covenant. We can well imagine that as the Philistines had this ark and the various difficulties that are associated with it, doesn't it remind us of then how the next chapter will so quickly open? The Philistines, of course, perceived that things went very sorely against them and for their god Dagon as a result of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they called the diviners of the Philistines. They called those whom they could seek their advice and in so doing, to inquire as to the way to return that ark to the land of Israel. When those diviners made their suggestion as chapter 6 opened, you may notice particularly in verses 2 and following, the particular suggestion that was made was a very intriguing one. In fact, they quickly said, Do not send back the ark empty. That is to say, don't send it back empty-handed. For perhaps one needs to appreciate the need for a trespass offering to appease the God of the Israelites so that things may be well with us and in the character of our God Dagon. As the verses proceeded to describe the events surrounding that return of the Ark of the Covenant, we notice that that particular trespass offering became a matter of great curiosity. In fact, the Philistines immediately inquired, What should we use for a trespass offering? What should we send along with this ark to appease the God of Israel? It did interesting in verses 4 and 5, the following description is given. This trespass offering consisted of five golden tumors and five golden mice. Interesting, isn't it? By the way, that mention of the, of the word mice seems to suggest perhaps that the nature of these evils that were brought upon the Philistines not only included the tumors about which we've noted earlier, but it also included, it would seem, and one of the Hebrew words used seems to suggest this may have been an occurrence of the bubonic plague. If so, it would be the first recorded occurrence of such a thing because we remember that that, when it spread across Europe back several hundred years ago, that rodents were primarily the carriers of that disease. If that were the case here, we notice that a very great slaughter, perhaps in part, brought about not only as a result of the tumors, but maybe even as a result of this very sore and serious plague brought upon these Philistines as a result of the ark. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the Philistines so chose to take the advice and to send that ark back to Israel 
And hopefully all these problems that went with it would also return too. As you can imagine, as the verses proceed, they in fact put together a very elaborate means of returning that ark. The elaboration went like this. They in fact constructed a new cart and they had it pulled by two milk cows. The thought behind it was this. Put that cart, loading it with the various Ark of the Covenant and these trespass offerings of gold, these images, and send it on its way. And if the cows take a straight course to Bethshemesh, you can rest assured that the God of heaven has been behind this. You can rest assured that these things that have transpired, these tumors, these other diseases and death, they were not accidental, they were not happenstance, but the God of heaven was behind it. If, on the other hand, the cattle went a different path, then it was all happenstance and it was all chance. After they loaded the cart and sent the cattle on their way, the text is very clear in saying that they went lowing and trod a straight course to Beth Shemesh, the Philistines ought to have learned a valiant lesson that the God of heaven was behind this. And this was a sentence of judgment from Him and His wrath was being poured out upon them because of their possession of the ark. You'll notice that that ark did come to Bethshemesh. And chapter 6 reminds us that it came to rest after all these seven months of time in this location described in verses 14 and following. In the field of Joshua, it was during the time of wheat harvest that this ark had returned. And needless to say, the Israelites were overjoyed at seeing it. It had been gone for these number of months. In their excitement, the people of Beth Shemesh, however, went a bit too far. They, in fact, opened the ark and looked inside it when they were not authorized to do that. Verse 19 tells us that over 50,000 of them died because of it. Here was a great slaughter even amongst the children of Israel when they went too far in their reception of and in their unauthorized viewing of the Ark of the Covenant. Needless to say, the people of Beshemesh became concerned about having the Ark as well. And as chapter 7 opens, they in fact send word and have it taken to another Israelite town. This one is known as Kerjath-Jerim. And so off to that place as well, the ark was taken. We notice in immediate order that some 20 years elapsed, according to verse 2, in terms of the aboding of this ark in that city, Kerjath-Jerim. After that period of 20 years, though, we do somewhat find interestingly that that ark, of course, later will find its place. David himself, in a later lesson, will in fact be a key figure in bringing that ark to a location in which it will occupy a central station, ultimately in the temple that his son Solomon will one day build for now. Might we notice that in the remainder of chapter 7, Samuel takes center stage. Samuel again is of a position to notice the people at that time had a mindset that they wished to be right with God. They wanted to repent. And so they approached Samuel asking in what way that should be done. And Samuel was very stern in saying, The reason for your difficulties and the reason as to why matters have transpired as they have have been because of your idolatry. You cannot serve God in these idols. 
So Samuel urged them, in fact commanded them, put away all these idols, put away all of these things uncommanded by God and serve Him with all your heart. And so it was that Samuel called a location in Mizpah and there offered a position of sacrifice on their behalf after they had put away these idols, after they had put away these various and sundry other things that were disobedient to God. As Samuel offered this lamb in verses 9 and 10, we find that things took a very different turn for Israel. With their heart now properly dedicated to the Lord and their desire to serve Him properly, we notice again that they entered into a skirmish, a battle with the Philistines. But this time Israel, though they were greatly fearful, the text simply says that God thundered a great thunder and discomfited the Philistines, and Israel never even had to fight, it would seem, in any great matter. But rather, the Lord provided the victory. In verse number 12 is the lesson text that was read earlier this evening. When we noted that Samuel erected that stone and called it by the name Ebenezer, for there he noted the Lord has helped us. And the curtain basically closes on chapter 7. We find one final observation. Samuel, it says, judged Israel and did so in a very powerful fashion and he made a circuit visiting various cities on an annual basis. Cities such as Bethel, verse number 16, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And so it was that as Samuel judged Israel, we find a very different matter than it had been in the days of Eli. Whereas Eli, of course, had been rendered unfit due to the failure to restrain his children, we notice that Samuel was one who was lifted so highly, respected so greatly for his leadership in the ways of God. As we have looked then at the text of those three chapters, what might be some lessons, some thoughts that you and I can use in our own way to help us appreciate some meaning in this that can be of helpfulness to us too? You'll notice that as we close that particular statement of the historical sketch, interesting isn't it that one of the lessons that seems so prevalent and so easy to see would be this one. Although we didn't learn it immediately in chapter 5, we do learn it abundantly in chapter 7. The children of Israel, even though they had been given the law of God, not that many years earlier, Moses, for example, had come down from Mount Sinai and had in his possession tables on which the finger of God had written his laws. This people had been apprised of and were knowledgeable of the nature and greatness of the God of heaven. And yet they had stooped to idolatry. They were serving Baal. They were serving Ashtoreth. They were serving the various gods and goddesses of that area in time and place. And in so doing, God had already affirmed generations past that He is a jealous God. Exodus 20, verses 7 and following. In the nature of that jealousy, He does not accept co-equal service and co-equal worship. The supremacy of God is so amazingly seen, isn't it? When they placed that Ark of the Covenant beside Dagon... Dagon not once but twice was fallen on its face. His head and palms were cut off the second time. The Philistines ought to have learned a majestic lesson that, of course, idols really are nothing. They are powerless. They are unable to speak. 
They are unable to breathe. They're unable to act. They're unable to, in fact, hear the petitions and pleas of those who call to them. The psalmist said it so well, didn't he, in the 135th Psalm. In the last several verses of that chapter, all those matters that we've just noted have been affirmed. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. They have hands, but they're unable to act with them. Idols are, in fact, empty and they're vain. And yet they were a constant problem in virtually all of the Old Testament era. Although the children of Israel, the people of God, had been apprised of His reality and His greatness, they had seen the Red Sea parted as they marched through on dry land in Exodus 14. They had witnessed the plagues brought upon the Egyptians, and yet, despite all of that, here the time had come that they themselves were guilty of idolatry. It will be not only a sore problem on this occasion, but that idea will take center stage many times in the remainder of the Old Testament. Isn't it true that in that we too should be constantly reminded that that still can be a very real problem? There might be some, though, quick to say, I would never bow before a statue. I would never, in fact, pray to a hunk of rock or a piece of metal or a chunk of wood. But in a very real sense, it has been an ever-increasing temptation on the mind not only of various individuals with whom you and I might be aware, but even those who are scholarly, those who are supposedly intellectual, to bow before one or another of various human-made gods. Aren't we aware, <clears throat> excuse me, of the thought, especially from those who have interest in astronomy, for example, as they peer into the heavens and they try to arrive at explanations of what they see, that more often than not, they think they have an explanation. And they are willing to almost assert it with absolute confidence. And yet, as a part of that is understood, one finds that it's nonsense of the highest order. To attach all of the greatness of that to what supposedly happened by random chance at best? To think that explosions of some sort could have brought the order and the reality of all that we perceive? Nonsense of the highest order. And yet so many choose to pursue that, teach it, believe in it, set it forth... And all the while, that is just one of a number of other matters just like it, where many think that human reason is the highest thing there is. They firmly believe that humanity can find the answers to every problem of every sort and kind that there ever shall be. May we be quick to say, perhaps quoting the words of Jeremiah 10, 23, "...it is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps." And yet we have the finest document of all time presented to us, it now has the answers. Not human philosophy, human sophistry, and human reason, but rather the character of what God has chosen to reveal to you and to me. We find in it, of course, the greatness of not only the nature of humankind. His greatest problem is sin, and the greatest solution is Jesus, the great physician. If only all would bow in humble submission to Him, we would find a solution to problems but because God has revealed them. Idolatry. We find even as we turn the page into the New Testament that it too occupies a central element of discussion, doesn't it? When Paul arrived at Athens in Acts the 17th chapter, 
His spirit was stirred within him, verse 16 tells us. Why? Because he perceived and saw that they had all kinds of erections of idols, all kinds of various offerings to any number of various and sundry gods. Even, in fact, one to the unknown God. And it was him that Paul said, I'd like to speak with you about him. For whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. There still are many ways in which we can fall to the very nature of idolatry. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 5 that covetousness is idolatry. In any time that you and I wish, desire, and pursue anything above our service to God, we have become guilty of idolatry. Is it any wonder then that the principles set forth in the Old Testament remind us that just as surely as God wouldn't tolerate it then, He will not tolerate it in us either. Perhaps another lesson. You'll notice that as we come near the bottom of that slide, perhaps the people of Beshemesh present us a lesson as well. We noted in chapter 6 that these people were excited upon the return of the ark. No doubt that as they saw those cattle coming and bearing this chest, and they recognized it, no doubt they began to feel greatly eased and greatly overjoyed at the thought the ark has finally returned and things will again be well with us. However, we are quickly reminded in verses 18 and 19 that they proceeded to open the ark and look inside it, and over 50,000 of them were slain. We might ask, what went wrong? They were excited. They were eager. They were overjoyed. They rejoiced. And we noted even in our lesson this morning how that you and I as well should feel excitement at the thought of Christianity, excitement at the thought of worship, excitement at the capability of wearing the name Christian. And aren't we reminded that we should wear that name with a sense of appreciation of, of course, what it comes from, Christ. As we are reminded about that nature of Christianity, is it possible for us to go too far? Could we, in our jubilation and celebration and excitement, take what otherwise is proper and right and extend it to a point where we go beyond what God would have us do? That excitement, of course, has often been the downfall of many. And in Romans, the 10th chapter, we find Paul's inspired statement to that very end. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In the central section of that book of Romans, we remember that Paul had many challenging and sobering things to say. But among that list... Paul's heart was breaking because the Jews, his own countrymen, had chosen by and large to reject the Messiah, to reject the Christ and to have nothing to do with Him, choosing rather to prefer the means of Moses, the ways of the Old Testament, and the features of that old law. Paul, on that occasion of Romans 10, said that his strongest desire and prayer was for this people that they might be saved. The problem was... Their zeal was unaccompanied by knowledge. Zealous, no doubt. They, in fact, had chased Paul all over the book of Acts. We find from chapter 13 onward, city after city upon his visitation to them, he often was run out of town. 
often under threat of his own death, all from the Jews. They were zealous. Make no mistake about it. But it was zeal without knowledge. Today, doesn't that challenge us with the fact that zeal must be accompanied by knowledge? Otherwise, we will go too far in that zeal. We will be quickly thus doing what our own entertainment wishes would affirm or what our own estimation of zeal would suggest. And all the while, we would leave behind faithful service to the God of heaven. More than once in the New Testament, that warning is echoed loudly and clearly, isn't it? We've noted the text in Romans chapter 10. We also find a bit later the estimation of where that zeal, if it's unaccompanied by knowledge, might lead us. I would invite you to think for just a moment about some of those epistles that were written by Paul to those young preachers such as Titus or Timothy. And what was carefully scripted and safeguarded in their mind. In 1 Timothy 4 verses 12 and 16, Paul very carefully told them, or rather told Timothy, that he was to be given to this. And certainly, wasn't it true that John said we must never go beyond it? 2 John verse number 9. It is for those reasons that we are reminded still in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6 not to go beyond the thing that has been affirmed and written for us. The human family is a master at going too far, isn't it? We have seen it for centuries in the denominational world when various and sundry things have been written in creed books and men have stood and so confidently affirmed it and folks have just believed it and run with it despite the fact the Scriptures have never taught it. Going too far, it can be easily done, can't it? Thankful should we be for a book that is so clearly affirming for us the nature of what God expects and the limits to which He only allows us to go. As you give thought with me about going too far and this error of the people of Bethshemesh, maybe it brings us to the third and final lesson of our study this evening. As you can see on this particular slide, the place of repentance is the thought that I would wish us also to consider. I'm sure you've reflected upon it as we noted the historical section just a moment ago. On that first occasion in chapter number 4, the Philistines resoundingly defeated Israel. There was not even any close contest. Over 34,000 apparently were slaughtered and slain. However, three chapters later when those two met again, this time Israel won. This time the children of God won. We might pause a moment and ask, what was the difference? What was it that resulted in Israel's defeat in chapter 4, but in their victory in chapter 7? The matter that chapter 7 unfolded was the central feature of Israel's repentance. You see, God was not with the children of Israel in chapter 4. They thought that by taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle, something which God had not commanded of them, they thought that that would guarantee their victory, but it didn't. God will not be manipulated by us that way. We find, however, upon their repentance and upon their genuine, heartfelt, obedient service to God, then He was with them. Maybe there is a grand lesson, of course, in that for us as well. The center station and the key thought of repentance. In the New Testament presentation, we understand too that Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, Nay, but except you repent, 
you shall all likewise perish. So significant was the occasion and so meaningful the thought that two verses later verbatim has found the same thing again. Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Was it not on the day of Pentecost when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? We so often give thought to the fact that Peter commanded baptism, but note he also commanded repentance to precede it. One chapter later in Acts 3 verse 19, we again notice that he said, Repent and turn again. Noting the character and the needfulness and the essentiality of repentance. We can see so often other texts are found reminding us still of the place of repentance. It would be entirely possible for a person to go through the motions of Christianity. Maybe one assembles, maybe one gives, maybe one does many other things. But if a heart is unrepentant, if a heart has not been touched with the needfulness of making the necessary changes in life and pursuing that course of action dictated not by the flesh but by the Spirit of God, then that person would find him or herself sorely and regretfully lost in that day of judgment. Repentance is a commanded matter, isn't it? Just a few additional thoughts about that idea would challenge us with perhaps those words that Paul uttered in the Acts the 17th chapter. As Paul made discussion of the idolatry taking place then, and the difference between previous dispensations and this one, he said, that at the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Can there be any question then that repentance is a necessary matter? As you and I witness an individual's public response to the gospel call of invitation, one of the things, of course, that we affirm in the needfulness prior to that baptism is we assert and assist the needfulness of repentance. Some ask, what is repentance? that change of mind that results in a change of action, a change of motivation. Jesus defined it as He spoke that lesson in Matthew 21. Beginning in verse number 28 of that chapter, He spoke about two sons, and the father had said, Go into my field and work today. One of them said, I will not, but later repented and went. What did the son do? He repented. Well, what did that mean? That particular son changed his mind. He at first had said that he would not go, but then upon that repentance he went. Thus repentance is a change of mind that results in or produces a change of heart and action. However, we see another lesson in that. The other son said, I will go, but then went not. He had failed to do the thing that the father had asserted and ordered. You see, either way, we notice a great lesson about repentance. I might ask each of us then to think about our own life. I know that I speak before many tonight who have long ago obeyed the gospel call of invitation. Think back upon the notion of repentance and how meaningful it was to perhaps leave behind certain activities, certain things in life, and with renewed vigor and dedication pursue a new course beneath the service of the Master. It could be, though, tonight that repentance is again needful for one or more in this audience. 
though once a faithful member of the body of Christ, at this point you are not. You have allowed far too much leeway to that old wily serpent. Too much, in fact, emphasis upon that which God has not commanded. You see, if you have been involved in matters like that, why not make a statement of repentance? If public in character, ask for prayers of brethren. They will be more than happy to note that repentance and pray to God on your behalf for your forgiveness. If we could be of assistance this very night to you, in one of these ways, whether initially obedient to the gospel or desirous tonight of returning to your first love, I would invite us to close the lesson with the lessons that we have just seen. The importance of repentance, the importance of the supremacy of God, and the greatness that we have learned about going the problem of going too far in service to Him. If tonight we could be of help to one or more in this audience, it'd be our desire to be helpful to you in the way God would have us do. We would ask you to let us know in what way we could be of service and that you would do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.